Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Emma Jackson, who's a lecturer at Goldsmiths, about her new book, Young Homeless People in Urban Space, Fixed in Mobility. Okay, so welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. Uh, on this episode, I'm going to be talking to Emma Jackson, who's a lecturer in sociology at Goldsmiths, about her book, Young Homeless People in Urban Space, Fixed in Mobility. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, the book is, is fascinating and really, really rich in terms of the detail of the ethnography and also raises a whole bunch of methodological questions about ethnography as well. And I suppose to kind of give the listeners a sense of of what's going on with the book, it'd be great to start with the stories that open the book. So you start with um, a couple of stories, one in particular, Lynn's story. I wonder if you could sort of talk me through that and tell me how that introduces the, the big ideas in the book. Okay. Well, I started with a snapshot, really, from the research, and it was a day when I was doing a photography workshop with a group of young homeless women from the day centre where I was conducting my research. And we were walking down the street, and it was the street where the day centre was, and one of the... I'd asked the young women to take photos of different things, just to structure the exercise. And one of the things I'd asked them to take a photo of was something that, for them, summed up London. We were walking past a cafe and there was people outside. It was a lovely sunny day. And there was a couple of women drinking coffee and chatting together. And Lynn pointed to those, to that cafe scene and said, that's it, that's London. You know, she was excited and taking a picture. And I wanted to use that at the beginning of the book, um, firstly to ground it very much in the landscape of London, which is an extremely extremely extreme city you know the extreme inequalities of wealth and I wanted to introduce Lynn to show how young homeless people experience that environment and are living with these juxtapositions Um, but also following on from Doreen Massey's idea really that it's not that London is a successful city um, but we have homeless people but we have poor people London is a successful city and part of what that produces is poverty and people living in situations like Lynn. The, the route into that kind of um, that recognition um, of both the production uh, of poverty and uh, the production of success isn't mm-hmm. the right word, but these kinds of uh, policy narratives mm-hmm. of, of success in London is through this case study, not just of the people, but of this institution, uh, which is a day centre uh, called Fresh Start. I wonder if you could say a bit about um, what the day centre is and about the idea of it being a produced space. Okay. Well, Fresh Start is a day centre rather than a hostel, and it's for young homeless people or those who are vulnerable of becoming homeless, but for the most part it's used by young homeless people. It's in the Euston, King's Cross area of London, which is an area that's undergone profound change over the last 10 years. And in terms of it being a produced space, what I wanted to get into was the complexities of a, of a day centre um, and to look at, A, how it's produced by 
policies by different waves of governments that come in and either um, feed money or not through different parts of the network of services that work with homeless people. But I was also keen to get across that it isn't just that these policies just sort of magically transform these places sort of from above, but that also youth workers and the people that work in them have a really important role in how they translate these policies and different kinds of demands on them. So how they deal with different kinds of funding structures, um, how how they bring those about in a place, they play a massive role in that. Um, and they can soften some of the blows maybe around funding changes. You know, for example, I use an instance of... Um, there was a particular education programme that kept the centre open over the weekend that came a particular source of funding. And um, young people who were... The condition of the funding was that young people had to get through this education programme. But, you know, youth workers would turn a bit of a blind eye to someone who really needed to be there, who was maybe having a sleep on the settee or something like that. So it wasn't just that this funding change came in um, and completely reshaped the place and also I wanted to bring in to the story of what a day centre is how the young homeless people themselves experience that place um you know as a place where they might meet people as a place where they might be expected to do certain kinds of work so I wanted to yeah I wanted to look at how it was produced by a number of things and through that I sort of trace how the day centre has shifted from becoming a place of refuge, uh, you know, a place where people can get a cup of tea, a meal, a shower, to something where they're expected to do these certain kinds of work. So to complete some kind of education programme or to work on a CV. Yeah, it's really interesting, um, I guess, the kind of uh, tension between support and surveillance that comes to Mm. later on uh, in the book around the the role and purpose of the centre. But also... Before we turn to that, it's worth thinking uh, in a bit more detail about the young people Mm. themselves. And in the third chapter, you introduce um, what seems to be really kind of like grand ideas about London as a city, around it being super diverse, uh, and then uh, at the same time, particular conceptions of space as being diasporic or bound Mm. up with, with migration flows. But you ground these in the kind of the individual stories of young yeah. people and their kind of senses of belonging and difference. So how do these kind of stories of belonging and difference work within Fresh Start? Um, and what do they tell us about these kind of bigger tales of London? Mm, that's a good question. I think, yeah, I, I, for me, telling those kinds of stories is the way that you you know, make links to those kinds of theories. Um, so I'm trying to think of in particular good story from the book i mean I, I think there are two there are two aspects to it um in terms of how it works as a super diverse space and the first is how do people get along with each other um in a place where they to some degree they have to be there they need to be there i think lots of studies of what's been called super diversity or diversity tend to focus on places like the marketplace or these these kinds of public, semi-public places. And I guess a day centre is a way of looking at how power and governance, I guess, works 
through the lives of um, of people who run a day centre. Um, Let's turn to the chapter. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many kind of rich and interesting uh, stories in the chapter that think about, say, particular use of language and its relationship to uh, transnational flows of, of, of both people and, and cultures. I mean, one, one of the things that uh, stood out to me was, was Andrew's story mm. and, and the balance actually you had to strike between, uh, you know, kind of representing what he was saying and his own constructed version of identity and then not lapsing into, as, as some of the uh, the authors um, who kind of use as cautionary tales, like that's Mac's work, for mm. example, not lapsing into just stories of this guy's a bit of a cracky cockney. Yeah, yeah. Andrew's a really interesting person who is a central figure in the book. And he talks in in his interview about being a cockney. He talks about, he talks about being bred, brought up in South London. Um, and through the interview sort of does this, performance of being a cockney that you know he comes across as this cheeky chappy um and yeah there's a risk in reproducing that kind of voice and just reproducing a stereotype but a i mean this is kind of how andrew self-presents all the time um but also it actually gets more complicated when you delve into what he's saying so he talks about being um a south london cockney um and describes this sort of English pub life as disappearing from London. But then he pulls himself back and says, but actually, um, actually, I'm Scottish. My parents are Scottish. So firstly, that complicates the idea that he's this embodiment of white Cockney London. And then also, even though when you transcribe his words, it might sound like this Cockney um, account of self. But when you hear his voice within his very voice, within the way he speaks, um, you can hear that he grew up in a multicultural London city. Um, and that's something about what gets lost when uh, voices are transcribed to the page, I suppose. Um, but I wanted to use Andrew's story to work through, to relate to um, the Aftal Bra's idea of diaspora space. Um, she writes about how we need to think about these spaces where we get all of these genealogies of dispersion, she calls it, um, how that shapes not just the people who belong to these diasporic groups, but also, as she calls it, those who are staying put, so the the Andrews of the story. Um, I argue in the book what makes the day centre a bit different is that nobody's staying put because everybody's moving from pillar to post all the time. But for me, that was an interesting uh, concept to think with, for thinking with somebody like Andrews story. We, we, we could actually probe that a little bit with this idea of being fixed in mobility, mm-hmm. which obviously is subtitle of the book, but also is a, is a key concept uh, that helps you think through experiences of mobility uh, mm-hmm. for the young people. So I wonder if you could kind of unpack that, you know, what, what do you mean by this term and, um, and how does it relate to the kind of core tales in the book? Well, fixed in mobility is I think it's a paradox, really, um, but it was something that I could see that young people were grappling with. So the young homeless people who came to the day centre are very much on the move, and I'll talk about that and how that manifests in a few different ways. So firstly, being on the move for some young homeless people can be a tactic, a way of staying safe. Um, that can mean all kinds of things. That could mean staying on the night buses at night rather than sleeping in a doorway so that you feel safe. 
It could be, uh, I use the example of one of the guides in the book, of how he's put in a hostel where he's really frightened, he feels threatened, so he walks all day long, um, keeps on the move rather than being in somewhere where he feels unsafe. So there's that. There's also, um, I found that lots of the people, young people who were from London, um, being homeless put them on the move in a different way. They led very local lives within a certain area, and in order to access home services, suddenly had to deal with central London um, and were then put in mobility, moving from hostel to hostel. I also found a more, com- more complex versions of mobilities than in some other books I've come across that are about homeless geographies. Um, one young woman particularly sticks in my mind here who was moving. She got kicked out of her auntie's house. She was Somalian. And she had been living with her auntie in a North London suburb. And she's in a central London hostel. She was moving between those spaces, not just to access community and homeless services, but she was also engaged in this pretending. She didn't tell her community or her friends that she was homeless. And she was maintaining this fiction of living with her auntie. So she was travelling backwards and forwards all of the time. So she was stuck in moving between these two places. Um, others will uh, sofa serve, so move between friends, families from house to house in order to stay uh, warm and safe. Um, but what I find interesting and very depressing about this state is what that does to somebody and being kept on the move in that way, what that does to somebody's um, chances, really. Uh, it makes people completely exhausted and unable to do other things and the things that maybe other young people are doing like uh, participating in education or employment yeah i mean that that's one of the central concerns of um the later parts of the book actually, mm. the kind of, as you call them the imagined futures uh, mm. that young people um who are experiencing being fixed in mobility you know maybe don't have or you know, kind of uh, limited or mm-hmm. around. But before we come, mm-hmm. come into that, um, I'd like to go back a little bit mm-hmm. to one of the things you mentioned with Andrew's story was the idea of um, in transcription losing yeah. certain things. Yeah. And the other thing that comes through this idea about being fixed in mobility that I think is really clear in the book is the idea of just going and kind of, you know, sitting down with someone for an interview for mm-hmm. an hour perhaps isn't sufficient and, you know, doesn't kind of capture what it is that, that you're interested in mm-hmm. as a researcher. So one of the things you talk about uh, is the idea of creative ethnography. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a good discussion, I think, in the third chapter of the sort of uh, the limits of traditional um, standard research methods mm-hmm. and then how you kind of negotiate it around it. So I wonder if you could outline that concept of creative ethnography and then give a couple of examples of, of what you did instead. And you mentioned yeah. that you know, making films, uh, the, the pod idea. Yeah, like yeah. Well, I think um, the reason that I came to the creative ethnography idea was through a set of failures. So I think I can only talk about that through talking about why the interviews didn't work at first. So I'd been conducting ethnography in the centre. Um, I was really excited about 
starting my interviews and getting some of these narratives down. Um, and also this was PhD research initially. And I think you're very concerned about the data, you know, getting the data. And I think there's a concern that maybe we imagine interviews as the real stuff, you know, or oh, this ethnography is all very well, but you know, my interviews. Um, and when I started my interviews, I found that it had the interview has all kinds of associations for young homeless people that maybe it doesn't have for, for other people. So it could have associations with an immigration interview with um, there was one example that I always think of with a guy who I sat down, did my preamble about what the interview was about and what was going to happen. Um, and he sort of airily waved me away and said, oh, it's OK, I've been in enough police stations. Um, and, you know, obviously I was horrified. This is so different. Um, but really that that encounter to him was like reminded him of being in a police station. So I think... There's a responsibility as researchers to think about the kinds of associations that our methods might have for people. And what does that do to an interview if somebody's prior experience has been sitting in a police station? Um, and, you know, there's that piece the in, about the interview society by Atkinson and Silverman, where they talk about the the problems with the interview being about, well, everybody's used to giving interviews these days, but I think they are thinking more about the middle-class self, you know, used to narrating the self. Um, but actually, for young homeless people, yes, they are used to interviews, but a very different kind. So that's a very long way of telling you how I uh, started to use other kinds of methods. So I started to think about, A, who didn't want to do these interviews and what was I losing through that and also about the kind of encounter I was producing with the interviews which didn't make me stop doing them it just made me change how I was approaching them and um and think about how I did them and who I approached to do them also um so the first thing I started doing was mapping which I just I, I sort of had it in my head that I would be interested in doing some mapping and one day when a couple of people were complaining about being bored I was like would you like to uh, help me out you know I'd already interviewed a couple of those people and um, I got them to draw maps of their London on pieces of paper and two of them really enjoyed it and really took to it and but one really didn't he was quite new in London and I think he found it quite alienating he just drew his hostel and the day centre and a church and then sort of withdrew from the exercise so what I decided to do in taking that forward was I got a big taxi driver's map of London to put on the floor and gave people bits of paper as well and said, look, you can either draw your own map of London or you can just draw on this map. And I think there's something quite fun and transgressive about drawing on an official map. So that worked well. So that was a, a way of eliciting other kinds of stories and getting other kinds of representations of people's experiences. And then the other thing I did was to piggyback onto a peer education project that was happening in the centre. That was about, um, there was a lot of worry at the time I was doing my research about a series of stabbings that had happened in London. And the peer education project was about safety and um, gun and knife crime on the streets. And that involved 
doing some filming with the young people about these issues. And to my surprise, I found that the camera had a whole other set of associations. I thought because people hadn't been keen on the tape recorder, for example, that it would be really difficult to get them to participate in a a project with a camera. But in fact, no, the camera um, had association, much more glamorous associations, I think, than the tape recorder. Um, And that proved a really useful thing to get involved in. So I suppose my idea about creative ethnography is just about thinking on, having to think on your feet a bit, but also really thinking through the ethical questions about the methods you're using um, and thinking about other kinds of methods that might bring in bring in people into a more participatory kind of project. I mean, some of those ethical questions um, are highlighted really well in the discussion of young people's experiences of, of surveillance, which, mm. you know, normally we'd think, uh, I guess, discussions of surveillance being about CCTV mm. and maybe particular kinds of authorities such as, as the police. But you also bring in uh, a different kind of idea of surveillance, which is surveillance by one's own peers. And that story you told earlier being kind of fixed in mobility to, you know, interact with and avoid mm. and negotiate surveillance, I think is particularly interesting. So what, what were you thinking of in terms of those experiences of surveillance? Well, I suppose it didn't come as any surprise that avoiding the police was a key concern for young homeless people. Um, young people are, come under a lot of surveillance anyway, and young homeless people have to spend more time in public places and are visible in particular ways. So that wasn't a huge surprise. Um, what surprised me a bit more was how they talked about, and not everybody, and it was quite a gendered experience as well, so young men from London who had become homeless and moved into the centre of London to access hostels or who were moving around London talked about the difficulty in accessing services or moving around the city because of forms of peer surveillance so that they would be identified as being not from that place and be hassled or come under threat of violence from other young men. And that's something I just hadn't really, perhaps naively, um, there's plenty of writing about young people. Les Back writes about this neighbourhood nationalism that young people in London um, experience. Um, But it's not something I've thought of in relation to homelessness and how that would interact with young homeless people having to access certain services or to move around, you know, talked about how people become fixed in mobility, but then how do you move through an area where you feel like you're not allowed to go? The, the other thing, I guess, around um, people's relationship, or your man's relationship with their peers and the broader mm. uh, relationship with the police is something you said earlier about kinds uh, of experience of imagining the future, but also feeling, you know, guess, kind of a sense of self-worth mm-hmm. around uh, their relationship to the city. So on that particular mm-hmm. point about imagining the future, I wonder if you'd say a bit about that, about um, both, I guess, the kind of um, practical realities of what's possible in the young people's narratives, mm-hmm. but also, uh, I guess, the kind of the limits they place on, on themselves because of their experience of this kind of constant daily negotiation. Yeah, I, I I think there's something, you hit on something there in that question, that is this real ambivalent home attachments that 
some of the young people from London um, experience and describe about the place where they're from. So they will say, you know, they will draw an area on a map and say, that is Bernsey, that is where I am from. Oh, but I can't ever go there because I have uh, a massive debt there that I can never pay, so I can't go there. Um, For me, it was important to get at that because I think sometimes just because homeless people might not have a place of their own. We write about them as if they have no place. And if I'm really strong, place attachments, although often ambivalent place attachments. So there's that. Um, In terms of how young homeless people imagine their future, what I found from talking to young homeless people about what they aspired to or how they thought things would turn out was quite different to... um, some other things, like I'm thinking of, there's this quote from Bourdieu who writes about people who have precarious existence and how they os- oscillate between fantasy and surrender, I think, is the quote. And I found something a lot more pragmatic than that. I found people talking about putting their future on hold, really. So talking about when my housing sorted, I will go back to college. When my housing sorted then I'll be able to get into catering. And they mainly weren't big, grand fantasies, really. They were things that seemed just a little bit out of reach. So somebody who was at college and had been studying plumbing but was sofa surfing so couldn't do that anymore, you know, recognised that when they had their own place, that was something they could do. Um, So, yeah, I found a much more pragmatic relationship to the future, really. Yeah, but it's, I mean, what, what's really clear in the stories is, is the kind of, just the demands of being fixed in mobility. Yeah, such that, you yeah. Know, even, you know, something um, that in policy discourses is said very flippantly about getting into education or, you know, securing um, a place to stay for mm-hmm. night or something like that. You know, that, that's a big ask for a lot of people um, you were working with. Mm-hmm. And thus, you know, these kind of imagined futures um, might seem quite you know, yeah. sort of small things, but actually it's, it's a big, big task. It is a big task. And even for people who are at the more um, secure end of the spectrum, so people who are in a hostel, to go into education or employment can be quite a risky business because you might have, it will mean losing your housing benefit for a certain amount of time uh, while you wait for your wages to come through and your new housing benefit claim to come through. And you'd find people who were, in that mid-period, um, you know, going into education, but all of everything had been thrown in the air in terms of their benefits. And that's that's a that's a big ask. So the way things are set up at the moment, it doesn't actually encourage people to go into education or employment because it's very, it's very risky. Yeah, how does the um, Fresh Start Centre relate? Actually, you use the term um, about hostels being enmeshed mm. in the benefit system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, you know, maybe you could say a little bit about what you touched on earlier about Fresh Start being enmeshed in the benefit system and then, you know, these um, places to stay as well being Yeah, well, Fresh Start is a, is a day centre and it refers people to hostels, but it can only really refer people into hostels who have a housing benefit claim or who can apply for housing benefit. So if you fall outside of that, you can't be referred into a hostel. Now, you can still come to the day centre and get a meal, join in, have a shower. 
Um, but the, in terms of accommodation, the only place you can go is the night shelter. So what you see is the changing boundaries about who is entitled to something like housing benefit impact on who falls out of the safety net. So at the moment, I believe um, it's EU people from the EU suddenly can't get access to these things. Um, so they're falling outside of the safety net. So to be, you're either in or out, depending on whether or not you're entitled to benefits in terms of accessing hostel accommodation. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's so tricky, isn't it? Because striking the balance between, I guess, um, showing a kind of systematic picture mm. that um, almost sort of dictates particular directions mm-hmm. for people's experiences of, of mm-hmm. mobility, and then at the same time trying to show the nuances of how this is, you know, negotiated and resisted, mm-hmm. and there isn't that one-to-one relationship between the policy happens and then, you know, something yeah. occurs. I think benefits and access to hostels is one of the starkest examples, though. There's stuff around, um, as I say, you know, participating in certain activities that might be funded or, you know, there might be pressure to get a certain number of people through a programme. And But there's some flexibility around the edges of those things, whereas something as stark as being entitled to benefits or not, that is quite a powerful excluder. I mean, to be included then, comes with other things, yeah. you know, like spoken about how um, you're expected to do work, to work on your housing in the hostel. It isn't seen as this, are we providing you shelter? It's something that you're supposed to work on. But to be outside of that um, is to be made reliant on cold weather shelters and soup kitchens. Yeah. And uh, again, as, as you touched on, even being included, included into a space where you feel threatened or included into a space that, you know, maybe you're not familiar with and have these, you know, um, perceptions or experiences of violence mm-hmm. and these kind of things mean that actually we're a world away, I guess, from both um, certainly the tabloid, but also the kind of policy narrative um, of engagements with um, London's homeless population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I wonder, like, by way of sort of concluding, uh, the book finishes with, with, I guess, a kind of a big story um, or you know, kind of a big picture comment mm-hmm. about um, what spaces of homelessness might tell us about the city. And I think, um, again, you know, you kind of flag this up at the beginning. It's really interesting that um, it forces us to reframe the story we have about London. Yeah. Not as a, oh, if only we could make London better and kind of cure these social ills, mm-hmm. but actually to think through the idea of, you know, cities to operate in these ways these issues will be with us mm. so i wonder yeah what does this kind of story of homelessness tell us about the contemporary city i was thinking about this um while you were on your way over and just for the the listener we're you know we're on the 11th floor of a tower block in new cross and from my office you can see right across to the city of london and i was looking across you know at the shard and whatnot and the gherkin and that's one manifestation of london's globalness yeah it's in you know as being a hub of international capital and so i was thinking about this question about well what do you learn from this small space this this homeless day center and i suppose it's this picture it's the flip side of that it's the global city from below it's the people who the city is failing really um and that's all kinds of things. So that can be how 
young people are exploited within within London, the kinds of labour that are available to them. So one of the examples that always springs to my mind is a young guy who was employed precariously crushing boxes on the night shift underneath Oxford Street. Um, and he kept nearly falling asleep, nearly injuring himself. And to me, that was such a powerful image of this, literally, um, this lying underneath the opulence of somewhere like the West End of these people crushing boxes. Who Who is doing that? Um, the other question, the other thing I think it raises is this question about London as a super diverse city. Who is who is coming? Who is coming into London? How is the border being reworked through the city? You know, we can see that in terms of who gets access to what, uh, who can move freely, who can't. Yeah, and, and particularly, it's through ethnography that we get a sense of the stories, free movement, mm. and you know the kind of the practical realities um, of not just these kind of big, again, policy or tabloid narratives of uh, moving people out of uh, Kensington or Westminster, mm. but the sense of what it means to say, this is not your space, you're not allowed in here. Yeah. Both by government, police, but also by other people. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the power of ethnography, really, and that's part of its worth, is that it can bring in those very personal stories to explain some of these processes and how how they are... How they are hurting people. Yeah, and um, the, the book had you know quite a sort of a long history. It was partially PhD research, mm. and then you built on it. Um, is it the kind of thing that you're carrying on working on, or um, have you got kind of other projects that you've moved on to now? I think the themes are things that I'm carrying on with, and I would like to go back and do more work on homelessness. The you know the landscape of homelessness. Is shifting all of the time in this country at the moment and it's only getting worse. So I'd like to do more work specifically on that. But at the moment, I'm working more with themes of belonging, urban change, London. A lot of the work I do is on, is on London. But at the moment, I'm doing another ethnography, but quite different, a very, very different space. I'm actually doing an ethnography of a bowling alley, um, which might sound like quite a frivolous topic compared to looking at a homeless day centre, but I'm looking at this place that's um, under threat uh, in the middle of an area that's been massively redeveloped. So looking at the kinds of socialities that unfold within the place, but also discussions of what makes good urban space and how we imagine the future of our cities. Uh, so there's some similar themes in terms of belonging and power and place. I'm not working specifically on homelessness at the moment. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Emma Jackson about her new book, Young Homeless People in Urban Space, Fixed in Mobility.